And I've always had a problem with the word minority because the word minority, I think, is a bit of a misnomer in the sense that there's actually nothing minor about who we are. It is so wonderful to have you all joining us today. I am joined by one of the most incredible people I know, somebody who I am very lucky to work with um, as a fellow UN Sustainable Development Global Advocate. But Eddie Ndopu is a lot more than that. He's been described by the media as Black, queer, disabled, and brilliant. He's an activist and humanitarian who was given a life expectancy of only five years. Now almost 30, as I said, he's one of the UN Secretary General's 17 Sustainable Development Goal Advocates, meaning he's been selected in the entire world as one of 17 people by the UN Secretary General himself, and he's pursuing a billion-dollar global access fund to benefit the billion people living with disabilities globally. Yes, the billion people. In his free time, Eddie is trying to become the first person with a physical disability to travel into outer space. And I can tell you, having worked with him, I don't doubt that that's going to happen, and I don't doubt that it's going to happen very soon. This is At the Table with Dr. Elam Murabit. Now, for those of you who don't know me, I am a UN high-level commissioner on health, employment, and economic growth, one of 17 global UN sustainable development goal advocates. I am also a medical doctor and a women's rights champion and strategist. I have traveled the world and met people who are leaders in their own industries, and I've met people who have completely changed the game, from names that we know to names that we don't. There are people who have championed inclusive security more than anything else. So At The Table is really a collection of in-depth conversations and interviews with leaders in all industries. It's looking at how we create systems and structures and communities and selves that really represent what we need in the world today. Now, it's been called At The Table because I think the single most important thing is for us to create and cultivate spaces. And this one is mine where I invite you to connect with and to learn from and to teach one another about the importance of inclusive leadership and making sure that when you are at any table, you are bringing somebody with you, an idea with you, a perspective with you that isn't already there. So thank you again for joining me. I hope you enjoy it. Thank you for listening and for being here. And please let me know, what does being at the table mean to you? And who are you bringing with you? Eddie, thank you for joining us today. How are you doing? Oh, I, I am so excited to be in conversation with you. Um, I think this is an incredible platform and kudos to you for convening um, these change makers together. And um, I'm just so honored that you selected me to be part of this incredible conversation. So thank you so much. Oh, I'm so excited to have you. So. Eddie, the first thing I ask every guest is if they can tell me how they're feeling in two words. So I feel... I feel cautiously optimistic. Okay. Why the cautiously and why the optimistic? Have you seen what's happening in the world today? <laughs> I, You know what? I, I have and I, I feel... I, I just saw the September issue of Vogue magazine and all of the activists that were featured in that issue, 18 incredible activists from the likes of Angela Davis right through to people like Alice Wong, um, you know, disability activists, gender activists, 
um, climate activist. And I feel as precarious as this moment feels, um, it is one that is also pregnant with possibility um, in the sense that I feel that people um, are more fearless and unafraid than ever before. And so that makes me feel really optimistic. I'm cautious because um, I'm somewhat fearful as well that this could be a moment that could pass us by and, mm -hmm. and that we don't fully grasp the magnitude of what this moment is calling us to do. So what do you think this moment is calling us to do? Um, I think this moment is calling us to reflect deeply on our place in society. And I think the hour is quite important there because I think I'm specifically speaking to those of us who feel left behind, um, those of us whose voices um, have not been adequately amplified at the forefront of the really important conversations and where decisions are happening at the table. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think the real invitation, I think, is to really look inward within ourselves and to excavate the power that we have um, mm -hmm. to be able to shake things up and, and really um, call upon the world to do and be better, right? So I'm speaking specifically about people who are, you know, people of color, women, queer people, disabled people, um, you know, it, it really is for, for the squad, you know, those of us that have just felt that we, we this is our moment. And, and I think um, I just really want to center those experiences and have our voices be amplified in this moment. So I, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic that that's going to happen. So how do we do that? As somebody who's kind of had to, had to create oftentimes space for yourself because people would not create that space for you as somebody who's made it clear that your voice, your experience, your perspective, your, your constituency are critical, right? How yeah. do we create that space? Especially if we feel like we ourselves don't necessarily have the power. We're not sitting at the table. Yeah. How do we ensure that other voices are heard or how do we amplify our own? I, I think we start by, crafting a new methodology and and so what do i mean by that so you know we 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 use the word intersectionality right it's become the mantra it's become um you know the slogan for um a kind of coalition building and a multi-stakeholder approach to activism that really leaves nobody behind and people often think about intersectionality as an identity so you just sort of like glue together different experiences and voila, you have an intersectional person. Um, but when I think about Kimberly Crenshaw, who of course coined the term intersectionality, I think what she was inviting us to do was to think about how it, intersectionality is a methodology. It's a way of being able to look at the world Mm -hmm. in a really multifaceted, kaleidoscopic kind of way, right? So I think methodology is really important because what intersectionality says to me is that there is another way of making change, 
that doesn't look like the scripts that we've been given, um, that the, the, the script that we've been handed um, by the prevailing global power structures, right? So in, in, in terms of what that means for amplifying our own voices, what this says is that we are the architects of new approaches. We can, we can do things completely differently. We can throw away the rule book. We don't have to follow a linear specific path that requires us to fit and pigeonhole ourselves into somebody else's definition of what it means to move through the world as a human being. That within us, we know that if we are attuned to our own needs, or if we're attuned to the needs of our community, therein lies a blueprint for new ways of doing things. And I think ultimately that's what it comes down to, is that the spaces that we create, um, they don't have to look like the spaces that we've been told um, that there are multiple ways to exist in the world. Yeah. And, and that's what needs to be validated. And, and that's what needs to be illuminated for everybody to see. That's incredible. So does that make sense? That does make sense. That does make sense. And I think for it to make even more sense, particularly to our listeners, I'm going to actually ask you to rewind completely. Sure. Back to the beginning and tell us what made you I think first and foremost, what made you kind of delve into and lean into your own voice, but what were the life experiences that shaped a lot of the way that you look at equality in the world today? So I was born with a severe degenerative condition um, called spinal muscular atrophy. And essentially what it is, is a motor neuron condition. So it affects the voluntary muscles. And put in layman's terms, what it really means is that the older I get, the weaker I become. So I was given a prognosis of five. Um, and I obviously defied that and, and I'll be 30 this year. And, and so what that really means is that I have become adept at what I call existential defiance. So... <laughs> What that means is that I am literally living on, I, I, I have outlived myself and therefore my understanding of time is very different. I, I don't think about time in its descriptive sense, but more in its interpretive sense. So it's not so much about how long I live, but how joyous, beautiful, meaningful, deep and compelling the life is that I'm currently living, the life that I've been afforded with. And so I feel this deep sense of urgency to just live the very best life that I possibly can. Mm -hmm. And my advocacy, as because I identify as a social justice advocate, but my advocacy looks a bit different because I am not content with the minimum threshold that we often embrace in our advocacy where it's about the very basic building blocks of what it means to live a life because there was a minimum threshold that was imposed on me which said that I wouldn't live beyond the age of five. I insist on the most marginalized and vulnerable communities in the world 
feeling completely entitled to mm -hmm. an extraordinary existence to really it's not so it's not just about the social justice piece but it's about the existential justice piece mm -hmm. right that our lives are imbued with such meaning Allah you know I I wake up in the morning and you know I, I not in like a you know sort of um glib sort of way but I really marvel at the fact that gosh I'm here like I'm here I'm, I'm talking to you I I'm alive I'm breathing and it's difficult it's hard I I live with a disability there's certain things that I'm not able to do but my god I am here and and the question then becomes what am I going to do about it what am I going to do with this time that I've been given that's like a bit wonky but it, it's still time I, I still get to be able to utilize it in service of something that is greater than myself and so it that that sort of existential defiance that um deep profound level of embracing life with both hands that that is sort of what informs everything for me when were you hit by that was it at five was it at 10 was what was that moment where you were like you know what no this is this is the time i have but i'm going to be in service of others what was that moment that experience what happened so i i think a few things happened i think for me the real turning point was probably in my early 20s um, by this time, I was an undergraduate student at Carleton University in Ottawa, Canada, um, pursuing, you know, a human rights um, degree. And I, after my undergraduate studies, I returned to South Africa and I was so dissatisfied. You know, I was just, I, I, I had this, the, the kind of frustration that just kind of like reverberates through your bones. Like you, you can't really put your finger on it, but it's a deep dissatisfaction with life. And I realized the reason why I felt so dissatisfied was because everybody else around me thought that I had reached my ceiling. You know, like everybody's just like, oh, wow, like you've done it. You're done. You know, you are an outlier because you know 90% of black and brown disabled kids never get to see the inside of a classroom 90% this is an overwhelming horrifying statistic and behind that statistic are real people with hopes and dreams and fears and aspirations and i i i exceeded that right so i here i am i've outlived myself i i you know i went to canada i i you know i i was educated and i was not happy with that i i was not done because i felt that it, it was an aha moment for me because what i realized was oh my advocacy for the inclusion of disabled people is actually about our self-actualization. Yeah. Right? But, and then I realized, oh, wow. Activism 
another word for that is probably imagination. It's, it's probably empathy. It's probably defiance. It's probably so much more than what I thought it was, right? And then that became the clip. That's when I realized that my purpose on the planet is actually to demand more than what the world is prepared to give me. That it's about really pushing the envelope as far as I could so that everybody feels as though their life has meaning mm-hmm. and, that, and, and that they're able to experience joy and love and belonging. And so I look past the ramp because, because um, you know, for so long, Allah, I've been saying, oh, you know, we need to make the built environment accessible for people with disabilities. And yes, we do, but the ramp is not enough. The ramp was never enough. I want to have the whole building and true accessibility is about the connection, the empathy, and the possibility that that space engenders for all people of all abilities and all identities to come together. That, that there's another meaning when we use these words, accessibility or inclusion, or diversity, there's something that's not said that lies just beneath the surface of those words. And that is what I wanna unlock because there's something magical and very transformative about that kind of envisioning and imagining. That is incredible. So you've spent a large part of your work advocating for a world that does that is accessible, both in the literal and in the imaginative sense. And you yeah. mentioned a little bit about the ramp and about kind of saying like, hey, how how are we supposed to participate if the structures completely inhibit yeah. our participation? So can you tell me a little bit about that work? And beyond just that kind of imaginative space, what yeah. success would look like in recreating this world? Um, so a, a couple of years ago, I, ago, I, I, I coined this term, um, moving beyond zero, right? And, and, and this is the only way that I could really understand and, and make sense of the world within which I was sort of moving through, um, is that I think if we were to quantify the experience, the place um, in society of marginalized communities, we are operating at negative 10, right? On every level, right? Neglect, isolation, trauma, you name it. Like we, we're living in a state of negative 10. But you know what's interesting is that for policymakers and development practitioners, zero is the aspiration, right? So if, for example, you know, as a disabled person living in South Africa, where I currently am, on a continent where it is literally impossible to get from point A to point B because we don't have public transit, we don't have the infrastructure that makes it possible for me to move around. Um, that, that the attainment 
of the bare minimum, the attainment of the minimum threshold, then becomes celebrated as a marker of progress. And I began to realize that like, oh, wow, we need to do a better job at moving beyond zero. Like, how do we go beyond the compliance logic mm-hmm. that sort of underpins the way that we think about public policy and the way that we think about social justice? So, I mean, in the context of COVID, I think this is really, um, you know, the, my, the best way that I can really explain this is that everybody seems so shocked right now that, you know, between 100 and, and 500 million people are plunged into poverty as a result of, of, of COVID and, and the economic fallout. Um, but the fact that so many people could easily be plunged into dire economic circumstances is a reflection of where they were before. So it clearly meant that, and, and you know what's funny is that we counted moving from $1 to $3 a day as, yeah. as progress, right? That vision that we held for what it means to create a world that is free of poverty was one that moved from negative 10 to negative five, maybe zero. But if we truly are committed to a world that is equitable, that is inclusive and that needs nobody behind, then we need to do that work of envisioning policies that go beyond zero. So I I guess for me, this is a practical application of the way that I've been able to merge the imaginative, the imaginative definition of activism and, and my profound commitment to equity in, in a very tangible sense is thinking about this framework of beyond zero as a way to um, really enable us to have more ambition um, in the work that we do. So Eddie, there's been kind of this question ever since I met you the first time that I've always had my, my head. Um, And every conversation we've had has only kind of cemented, I think, my understanding of why you are determined to do it. But listeners should probably hear as well. It's the first time we've met you've told me, I'm going to go to space. It is necessary. It is imperative. It is going to be transformational. And I've kind of been like, yeah, but why? Like, Uh, space is cold, you know, it's it's dark. You know, it, it's it's a really great question, and and it's not as if I so I'm not like a space junkie. Like no, no, not at all. Like I'm not. You know, I don't spend my days like you. I I'm not. I, I'm not a space nerd in that sense. I I think it's cool, but I've never been driven. It, it's never come from that 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 space. Um, no pun intended, but. I, I, I realize that the commitment to do it is because I, I genuinely believe, Allah, that disabled people, we defy gravity every day, truly. And, and, and I want your listeners to sit with that because the resilience and the tenacity and the resourcefulness 
that is required to be able to wake up every morning when you live with chronic pain and you live with the very real limitations of what it is that your body is unable to do, to still have an appetite for life in such a context. And I suppose it doesn't just apply to disability, it applies to all of our other identities as people, right? That to wake up in a world that is anti-Black and see the beauty in Blackness, to wake up in a world that is misogynistic and see strength and power in girls and young women and older women, that that kind of resilience is an act of defying physics and defying gravity. And so for me, my desire to want to go to space is, is really grounded in in that profound recognition. And so it's a symbolic endeavor. It it really is to sort of say to, to, to disabled people that like, this is the logical next step. Like literally, like defying gravity is the logical next step because we continue to defy expectation. We continue to defy our prognoses. We continue to defy all of these structures that actively work against us on a day-to-day basis. And so what, what an act of audacity, you know, to be able to say that, yeah, sure, you know, this, um, this kid, you know, this young person, um, you know, from the tip of Africa has this ambition to float in space. Um, and that, yeah, why not? Of course, um, you know, it, it really comes, I, I think, from, from that. So we've talked about it a little bit, and you, you've mentioned it a couple of times, but Eddie, what does power mean to you? Mm. Um, it, means, it, means, it means a few things. I, I, think, I, I, I think a lot about this idea of voice, um, I, and, and, and who gets heard and who doesn't get heard and the capacity to um, speak and to have your voice heard and, and for that to be amplified. I, I think all of that has to do with power, right? And, and so I, I'm, under, I, I, I'm under no illusion that power really is about the ability to be heard. Right, like I think that is so important and so necessary, and I think we need to ground it in that very pragmatic and tangible definition. So it's that, um, but I think power is also feeling unmoved in the weight of my own largeness. Um, and so, what does that mean? I think it means that you know we, we're living in a world that tries to shrink us. Uh, we, 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 people want to shrink, especially people who come from quote unquote powerless segments of, of society. I've, I've always had a problem with the word minority because the word minority, I think, is a bit of a misnomer in the sense that there's actually nothing minor about who we are, I, I, particularly communities 
um, you know, that, that, that have all of these identities. There is a largeness within us that we need in order to get through life every day. We need to expand and we need to see ourselves as bigger than the spaces we currently occupy. That is literally how we survive. And so I am always in pursuit of illuminating and validating the largest, not only within myself, but the largeness in the communities we work with. Um, because in some instances, I truly believe that we, we, are, we are too big to fathom. Um, there's nothing minor about who we are. And so there's a strange irony, right? Is that the people that are the most minoritized are actually the people with the most capacity to be able to get the world out of the place that it currently finds itself in. And so that is, that, that is um, I think my, my work as, as a thinker, as an activist, as a humanitarian, is to constantly spotlight and showcase the largeness of communities that live, um, that are made to live in, in very small and, and, and marginal spaces in, in, in the world. And have you ever had any work that you've done, and I'm sure you've faced comments and um, you know belittlement and people mm. who, who have, I think, you know, laughed or scoffed or at your vision, at your ambition, at your at your determination for self actualization, at your fundamental belief in yourself. And I I mm. wonder, has there been a moment where you've kind of sat with yourself and been like, this is difficult, this is tough. I has there been a moment where you've where you've had to really call on you know inner strength in a new and unique yeah. way, um, where you have felt you know more alone, where you have felt more. Yeah. What what was that moment of vulnerability, and where do you get your strength from? Because for so yeah. many people living with disability, living you know people of color, people who, as you say, live in those small spaces are are, are mm. forced to kind of live in the shadow. Um, where do they get their strength from? That, that's such a great question. And the first thing that I feel so compelled to say is that the strength that we are required to embody and exhibit is often an imposition, right? In the sense that, like, it's great. You know, I, I love celebrating our strength. I really, really do. I, I, there is, our resilience is awe-inspiring. But sometimes I look at it and I'm like, damn, Allah, I don't feel very strong today. I don't. I feel weak. I feel like I want to cry. I feel, I, I feel overwhelmed. And, and I think about how for many of us, we, our strength comes from the very necessary desire for survival right but sometimes it's actually not a choice but like you know i need to get it together i need to pull myself together today and you know what i'm feeling pretty weak and pretty beaten down but i need for my for my survival i need to move forward strong right and so i think there's an element of privilege uh, you know that that the privilege 
to not have to feel strong all the time, I think says a lot about the power structures in the world, that their communities are constantly living under duress and under precariousness, and that they are always required to be strong. And that actually to lift that burden is probably an act of liberation as well. That that the you know that the, the pursuit of not having to 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 bear the weight of of strength and courage that that in itself I think is 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 part of this goal of of self actualization right This is why people and 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 you know what you said about you know belittlement and scoffing I I think it, I I think it's true I think that you know for many um, you know certain activists are like oh you know why is joy so important? Like, why do we speak about these frivolous things, you know? Um, and and, and I've realized that, oh, it's not frivolous, not at all, right? In fact, it, there's something incredibly um, robust about an activism that centers the emotional, um, that, that centers the emotional liberation of communities that have always had to shoulder the burden of strength, right? So, so I, I think it's important for me to say that. And I think I, the, the, the strength, I, I've had to sort of redefine strength for myself. Um, I am at my strongest when I feel my happiest, when I feel my most joyful, when I am in conversation with people who I hold in high regard, like you, right? Like this moment for me feels empowering because the moment I get off of this call with you, I'm gonna think about it, I'm just gonna be like, oh my goodness, I just had the most badass conversation. And it was with Dr. Alan Murabit, who is amazing and she's incredible. You know, so the strength is really from feeling um, inspired by people who I know are, are in it with me. You know, when we roll in packs and we're like, oh, so-and-so is, 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 is doing it, you know, and they're doing phenomenally, then I can draw strength from their strength, right? So I sort of see strength as this sort of collective endeavor, right, where we're able to sort of lean on one another um, for support, right? I, I don't sort of see it as this individual thing because I think to see it as an individual thing is, is it's just too hard. And, and I think it's just, it's unfair and, and it's just an, an impossible ask of people who already are required to endure so much. We had, um, you know, Leila Said who wrote Me and White Supremacy. Uh, we had this wonderful conversation and, and, and she mentioned, you know, that truest, the truest form of liberation is to feel your whole spectrum of emotions and to have that held against you, right? To be angry when you're angry, to be upset when you're upset, to cry when you want to cry, to laugh when you want to, and not, and I think it, it counts in so many ways. It counts kind of when we look at liberation from a perspective of, of who we often call the minority, but it also I think when we talk about liberation, even in terms of masculinity and in terms of 
having that, that, that knowledge that, you know, a woman can be upset when she's upset. A man can cry when he wants to cry, you know, and, and I think it's, it's such an incredible and very understandable and very, because you begin to ask yourself, do I feel comfortable showing my full range of human emotions? You know, when I was a kid, I remember my mom would tell me like, if I was really upset with bullies at school, she'd be like, don't let them win. Don't show them your um, and as I've grown up and I've taken that in, you know, to the UN with me to, to kind of places where, where there are global decision makers. If somebody does say a, a xenophobic comment, a sexist comment, I usually swallow it. I'm like, don't be the difficult one, you know, and hearing you say that and realizing that this is, I think the most powerful thing about this, this, these conversations for me so far have been realizing how many of us feel the same feelings. Yeah. And fundamentally believe we should be able to have those feelings publicly without having them used against our entire community. And that's the strength, I think. That's the power of these conversations is that we realize that like, oh my goodness, you know, we, we really are not alone, right? And, and I think we, 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 we get that intellectually, right? Like, you know, we're always talking about solidarity and being there for communities. But I think it's one thing to understand that, right? Like, you know, in a cerebral sense, right? That like, oh yes, of course, like, you know, I'm, I'm part of a community, but it's another thing to sort of lean into that, right? And really employ that and, 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 and recognize that like, oh my goodness, these really hard emotions that I carry around with me in spaces where I'm expected to perform in a particular way, that that is not unique to me, that there are people around me you know, um, that are part of my community that goes through these things as well. And I think what is really liberating about these conversations and, and, and I'm just so indebted to you for, for doing this is that we get to free one another, right? We get to be like, oh, all right. So the next time I'm in a space, it, it's not going to go down like that. Like, I'm not going to swallow it anymore. I'm not going to, I am going to feel uh liberated to be able to fully sit unmoved in the weight of 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 who i am and 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 how i show up in the world i love that so who do you go to where do you go when you feel when you want to talk about how you're feeling and you know you can't kind of do it at work you can't do it with a lot of people you work with where do you go and have that full range of emotions so I, 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 I go to books, um, you know, reading, I, 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 I sit with the words of thinkers and scholars that I admire, and I just sort of allow myself to be a student of their life experiences and just to soak up whatever knowledge that they're able to share. What is your favorite book? The, the kind you always find yourself going back to? Oh, that is a hard question. I, um, Woman at Point Zero, Nawal al-Sadawi. Um, there are a few, James Baldwin, Audre Nord, um, Bell Hooks. Um, oh my goodness, they are, they're literally, they're, they're just, they're, they're giant thinkers. Toni Morrison, I, I, I'm in a bit of a, right now, in, in a Toni Morrison um, phase, going back, reading everything, The Bluest Eye. Um, I, you know, it, it, I, I wouldn't say there's one book, but, but there's so many 
there's a canon, right? There's a particular tradition of, of, of activist thinkers that I keep coming back to. Um, you know, and, and I think they, they give me a lot of um, motivation and, and permission, I think, really, to just sort of like take a step back and, and just rethink. Um, mm -hmm. I've got a squad. I've got like a, you know, a group of friends on my, on my phone. We've got like a WhatsApp group and we're always checking in on one another. So that has been, you know, pretty amazing. And then my family as well, my mom um, and my younger brother, uh, we're a small family um but we um we're we're there for one another and that's been pretty incredible so eddie you know as we wrap up i want to ask you if you had to bring one thing one person one idea one thought you know to the table to this community what would that be and since you've already mentioned your books i'm going to take those off <laughs> <laughs> no doubling up answers right okay. That one thing that you you want us all to leave with it can be your favorite book, it can be an idea, that can be. I think. I I, I would it would probably be the idea that we are enough as we are. That that we are enough that we contain multitudes, and I suppose this really. I think the one word, I, I'm currently working on my memoir, and there's a particular work, a word that I kept using in, in, you know, in the different, um, in my different chapters, and it's this word kaleidoscope, the idea of a kaleidoscope, right, that it reflects um, light, and, and it's this sort of rainbow in a box, right, and it's got all of these different dimensions to it, and a kaleidoscope is so expansive and so difficult to contain. And I sort of think of ourselves as kaleidoscopes, right? That all of our identities, all of our experiences, I, I think we live in a world that always tries to compartmentalize us, that we're always required to sort of um, reduce uh, the, the magnificence of who we are into these little bite-sized digestible things, right? And, and I think what I would bring to the table is really that, you know what, we don't need to do that. We really don't need to do that. I think we need to embrace the complexity and the magnificence of who we are in all of our kaleidoscopic glory. Um, so that, that would probably be it. We spoke a little bit about joy, but what is the one moment that you feel the most joyous, where you felt incredible, or or this was amazing? So I I um, last year I had the great fortune of visiting Mozambique, um, and and I um, got to be in the cockpit of a Piper plane, and we flew over. Um, the harbor and and that was extraordinary because you know as a disabled person i never in my life thought that you know i'd be able to get into you know these really small planes and to sort of have that vantage point of the world and it was extraordinary and i sat there i was supported by all of these cushions and you know there were these extraordinary people who literally picked me up physically and carried me into into the plane and, and I felt so 
it, it, it was it was so special. I think about that and I'm just like, oh wow, this is one of those beyond the ramp moments. Like, you know, like I, I'm sitting in a plane and I'm sitting next to this pilot and here we are flying over the harbor. And, and I think that was, you know, a moment that just brought me so much joy and, and I'll never forget it. That is incredible. So what is next for Eddie and Dopu? What's the next step, the, the next idea? When does your memoir come out? Um, so I'm currently working on it. So probably 18 months from now. Okay. Okay. I like that. Yeah, so, yeah, so that is, um, a, it, yeah. So um, I don't know. Writing a book is just, I don't know. I'm kind of like, what have I done? Like how, yeah, anyway. Uh, it's, <laughs> so so it's my memoir. <laughs> I ever thought was someone who told me, well, how do we eat an elephant? And I was like, I have no idea. And they're like, one bite at a time. And I was like, that oh, is yes. like 0% helpful to me right oh. now. <laughs> but that's actually very helpful. I like that. When you think back on it, you're like, actually, that's not too bad. So smaller, like chunks of, yeah. of accomplishments have been super helpful. Love that. So, so it's a memoir. Um, it's um, definitely continuing to make my dream of going to space um, a reality. Um, I was supposed to undergo uh, zero G training, um, but then COVID happened and so that's now on the back burner but I'm not I'm not giving up on that dream because I think it's so important um so definitely pursuing that um and then I think just trying to figure out how do I make myself useful in this moment really um you know collaborate with people that I really admire and just try and use my platform and my voice to advance the dignity and the self-actualization of of, of, of my communities, um, yeah. Who are some of the people that you admire, the kind of people that you think we should all seek and learn about? Oh my goodness. Um, doing work today, um, I mean, there are a few, you know. Um, I think about people like um, Amanda Nguyen and, and Nadia Murad, people that are working um, you know, in, in that particular space and, and calling our attention to the horrors of sexual violence. I mean, I'm really inspired by their activism. Um, I'm inspired by, um, I'm inspired by Black Lives Matter, um, you know, the, the, the movements of people behind um, the movement. Um, you know, I, I, I just think that to build a movement is, is, is really, I think what the work is, and 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 I'm just inspired um, by that. Um, I I'm I'm inspired by writers. Um, I'm I'm inspired. okay. So <laughs> I need to mention this person. I just watched Beyonce's Blackest King uh, <laughs> premiere, and I it was a feast for the eyes. I was truly stunned because I thought. Here is somebody, a global icon, who is using her platform to really show an entire people in a new light. And I just thought, wow, that is like amazing. You know, I, I you know, so I have to say, yo, Beyonce. Yeah, no, all roads lead back to Beyonce. I love that. No, it's true. No. The, the vision, all of it. And, and yeah, you know, so I, I think these days I'm, I'm really 
inspired by people that are able to combine different disciplines, right? Who are able to be super artistic on the one hand and then bring us back, um, you know, on the policy discussion, but they're just able to infuse so many different things. And, you know, you inspire me tremendously. Um, you know, you, really, you do. Um, and and as a younger person, um, I'm not that much younger than you, but I, I've followed your trajectory and I've followed your path. And it's, it's really, um, you really are a beacon of light for all of us to emulate. So I just want to say that. Thank you. You in, in 29 years have done more than, than most of us in a lifetime. And, and you've inspired this conversation, this movement, this moment. And I think it's just so inspirational for so many people. So I, I genuinely appreciate uh, you and, and, I'm, and I'm grateful for the leadership and for the courage you've had. Because you've had to have conversations where... I think, you know, people debate your existence and people debate your, you know, ambition and people debate, and you've had those conversations with grace, but with power. And I think that's such an incredible combination. Oh, thank you. Thank you for that. Thank you so much. So as we head off, where can our listeners find you? Where can they follow you? I mean, where can they write you love letters? Like, <laughs> I I accept love letters, and and folks can follow me on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook. Um, my handle Eddie Ndopo. Um, and yeah, and yeah, I'm I'm pretty. I, I'm not hard to find, so and I'm, I'm I'm pretty accessible too. So folks are more than welcome to write me anytime. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us, Eddie. It was uh, a and I am so grateful for your leadership and your voice. Thank you, Ala. I adore you. Thank you so much. Take care. Amplify our important message by leaving a review or subscribing. Collaborate with us to encourage more people to shout for change. And be on the lookout. We have more episodes coming soon, and I can't wait to share them with you. From At The Table, I'm Dr. Lamb Thank you for joining us.